Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of We, Us, and Ours. We are so excited for you to be joining us today. We have a very special guest, Mr. Ron Noble. Ron is an Emmy Award-winning animator who worked on some of my favorite cartoons as a kid. You will love his journey into Hollywood and see how jumping in and getting your hands dirty can be the best teacher of all. So without further ado... Ron, I am so excited to have you here with us. It is truly such a pleasure. For anyone who doesn't have the pleasure of knowing you yet, tell us who you are, where you are, and I'm so excited to have you here. Great. Thanks, Charlotte. Um, yeah, I'm Ron Noble, I guess mostly an animator, <laughs> animation director. That's what I've been doing most of my career here out in uh, Los Angeles. I used to work on a lot of Nickelodeon shows through Classy Chupo. We made the Rugrats and Wild Thornberries and all that stuff in the early 2000s there that was just a blast. And then I've gone on to do other stuff with other studios. Um, nothing as long as that one. I was really lucky to be there for seven years. But I've stayed in LA and um, started my own little independent studio called Nobletown Studios, making a lot of pilots and commercials and explainer videos and children's books and whatever comes along, you know. Um, I play a lot of music. I got bass and guitars and all that back there. Um, haven't really done, I mean, I've been in a few bands, nothing big professional yet, but that's one of the other fun things about LA. Lots of lots of rock and rollers kicking around out yes. here. <laughs> you get to dabble in everything. And I think that kind of ties into a little bit of how, how we met. So right. one of the core values that we have at this podcast is that we believe in making friends in unexpected places. And I think the way that you and I met really encompasses that. So I want to hear it from your perspective, because as my perspective, being the huge extrovert that I am, I can laugh about that. And I think, oh, my goodness, this may be overpowering for some people, but I want to hear it from your perspective first. Well, what I remember was we, you know, rolled into the, the Gaslight karaoke bar, right? Mm -hmm. uh, me and I, I guess two or three other friends. And um, I think at some point we're all kind of like, figuring out what we're gonna sing next, how it's gonna work, whatever. And you were sitting, I think over at the bar and I can't remember how it just, it just suddenly happened. We just started talking about something. You said, I'm Charlotte from Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at some point your little sticker card came out. I think that was adorable. And um, I can't remember if we just, did we jump on stage? How did we start singing? I mean, there was a little bit of drinking involved that night. So I'm not- Oh yes. So the funny thing that that whole night was un unplanned for me so it was this was august of 2019 and it was actually the day after my 23rd birthday right and right. so i had gone to dinner with a friend who had found out that my birthday was the day before and he said oh my gosh we have to go to this karaoke bar and i was like mm, it's like a it's a Tuesday night. I said, I, I, I don't know. And he said, come on, we'll, we'll be just a song or two. You'll be in bed by nine 15 tops. Little did he know we were going to stay till closing time. <laughs> and so we showed up and we, there weren't a whole lot of people there that night. We really lucked out. So I got to just talk with everyone. And I remember you singing the song, what I like about you. And that song always makes me think of 
Freaky Friday, which was just such a great, such a great movie. I was like, wow, I need to be friends with these people. And so I started talking to you and your friends. And by the end of the night, I remember we were getting ready to leave. And I said, well, let me give you my sticker. And you were like, oh, Charlotte from Chicago, let me give you my card. And it said, Ron Noble Animations. And I said, oh, you're in animations? You said, yeah, I was actually like the creator and working with Rugrats and Wild Thornberries. And I remember going straight faced and going, mm, smashing, quoting <laughs> 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 yes, Nigel Thornberry. <laughs> and I left that night. I was like, wow, as a child who was born in 96, like those, those shows were my childhood. So sure. it was so exciting. And I remember being at the beach about a day or two later and I found your business card in my purse and I had had a video of you and your friends singing. So I said, why don't I just text him the video and see if he wants it? And you had sent me a photo back and said, oh, like happy birthday, Charlotte. I put your sticker on my art tackle box. Right, right. <laughs> and I think that was one of the most kind hearted things anyone has ever done. Because you want to see? <laughs> guys. I've had this since I was like, teenager almost it's all these i just put stickers all over this box of art and then i was like oh all right we'll goodness. put that one right there yes uh, yes somehow it's hard to see it there you go <laughs> perfect <laughs> so okay so that holds all your art stuff correct and you've used that forever yeah i mean everything is so digital now that this is almost like a keepsake of of the way things used to be done you know exacto <laughs> blades hole punches i'm just, just pulling out <laughs> random stuff out of this thing electric erasers and i'm like what's all that stuff for you know <laughs> <laughs> you're like oh now that i use like adobe illustrator and yeah. all all these crazy things now, but now everything's done with this a little stylus on the screen right here like the actual screen the computer i can draw right into it now that's wow it. Erases that's crazy Z and that's we move on you know that's like <laughs> wow so when did that when did that transition start happening from you doing pretty much everything by hand to doing more tech All digital i would say it's probably around like 2009 2010 i think wow. it's when it started to shift and i started using a, a wacom tablet i remember the little the kind you put in your lap or whatever they got to cintiqs where you can actually write you know draw right into the screen but they were like you know three thousand dollars or something so i kept holding off on that and then eventually they got to the point where the computer and the, the Cintiq are all in one. So I got this system I'm on right now, uh, I think around like 2016, end of 2016. And when that, you know, like touch sensitive screen, so you can actually draw with, with the lines, you know, getting thicker and thinner, like you're on a real piece of paper and it's all a very thin laptop. And I'm like, well, now I can go anywhere. It's done. This is it. <laughs> so yes, immediately- the next year moved to, to Bali for a year. Each chair or whatever bar was my new office. I just plug in and start drawing. <laughs> That's amazing. See, you were on the work from home, work remote boat before, before all of us. That's oh, yeah. Yeah. crazy. Way ahead of the pandemic here. <laughs> <laughs> so would you say that that has like changed the animation game for the better because of all the digitalization and technology there? Oh, definitely. It was so frustrating trying to do this stuff, um, you know, even just with paper and like Xerox machines was, was probably a really big thing to come along when it did. Oh, I remember that was actually a story. Thousand, you know, uh, 101 Dalmatians, that, that mm -hmm. movie. The only reason that existed was because of uh, copiers being invented. 
so they could make all the really? black and white dogs and like you repeat them over and over again. Back in the day, that was really hard to do. And they were like, oh, we can actually make 101 dogs now, as long as we keep them all black and white. <laughs> that's so interesting. I never yeah. knew that. Wow. That's really, that's really cool. I think I'm getting the story right. It was some weird thing I read about it a long time ago. But, but for me, the real big difference was having computers. This shows you how old I am. But I, in, I graduated school in like college around 92. And then a year and a half later, they made the first software where you could actually scan drawings, you know, using a scanner. And the scanners were like really expensive and the software was really cheap. Now it's completely flipped. They give away scanners and Adobe, yeah. Adobe's a thousand dollars, you know? So it was, it was all floppy disks and really primitive, but it made this grid on the screen. You could scan everything in there and then color everything in the computer and assemble it in the computer and run little uh, pencil tests and, and, and see what it's gonna look like before you know, you have to output it. And that was a really big deal back then. Like that was, I think I probably bought from the first company that ever made it back then and started building my first cartoon all digital. No, I mean, I shouldn't say that. I was drawing it all on paper still and mm. inking it by hand, but then scanning it into the computer so that after, after that, everything else was done digital from that point on. That was a really big deal in the mid nineties, you know? Wow. So it accelerated quickly, but you know, when I started working at, at on the Rugrats and Wild Thornberries, we were still everything was was on paper and was cell painted. You know, that's regular. crazy. So yeah. wait, how did you how did you get started with the Rugrats and Wild Thornberries? I actually took a test. I went down to L.A. I was living in Seattle, and I kept driving down to L.A. to see if I could you know punch into Hollywood somehow, get in here. I took I forget how I got to it, but eventually I got enough interest from Klasky Chupa where they sent me a, a Rugrats test. So it was a storyboarding, you know, page and a half of script or something like that. And then you have, they give you all the templates and you had to draw it all out as if you're working on the show. I killed myself. I, I probably way overdid it. Like, you know, spent like six weeks on it and turned it in going, well, oh, that's never going to work out. And then a month or two later, I suddenly get a call and, you know, they're interested in giving me some freelance. And that's how I got in there. So wow. the, the rest of the story is actually more, I've told it a million times, is, is even funnier. Once I got in to the freelance level, I turned in my first round of work and they said, okay, we'll let you know if we need anything else. I'm still living in Seattle. I'm like, all right. So I, I felt really like I didn't do a very good job. Like I'd rushed it and I didn't know what I, it was the wild thornberries, actually one of the first episodes. And I'm like, well, they're probably not going to want to go for me again. I better stick with the job I have in Seattle at this educational software company. And then like, Two weeks later, I suddenly get another round of freelance. And it's funny, my confidence went from like, oh, I'm never going to do it to, oh, I got to move to LA now. It's over. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> go all in, bigger go home. I did. I, I quit the job. I said, I'm moving down there. I grabbed my freelance and packed up my everything I owned in my Volkswagen Golf and just moved down to LA and slept on my buddy's couch in Manhattan Beach and started going into the studio there. And I'm showing up and they're like, oh, what? I thought you were in Seattle. I'm like, no, I gotta, I'm going to come down to LA. Let's, let's make this legit. And they're like, you're just a freelancer, you realize. This isn't like a permanent gig. I go, I know, I know, but I, I, you know, this will be great. And then um, I tried to work at home and I literally couldn't do it. There was uh, all those tables were this kind of weird, like natural wood thing. And I couldn't figure out how to get the story under the light. I'm like, this isn't. So I, I drove back to the, the Hollywood again and said, hey, I, I got to finish this stuff. I can't do it here. Why don't I just take one of the, your open tables in the studio here? And the producer, um, she's looking at me like, this is not how you do this. This isn't <laughs> like, come on, I, I gotta, I gotta get this done. You need it done. Let's just work it out. They're like, oh my God, we're gonna have to break rules. For I'm, like, I'm like, come on. And they let me do it. I sit at the table and next thing you know, I'm getting donuts with the crew. I'm sitting in on the screenings for the rest of the week, you know, like 
taken really long time to finish on purpose so I can sort of settle in there. And by the end of the week, I'm like, hey, I heard this guy Albert is leaving. You need somebody to replace him. I'm like, come on, let's just do this. <laughs> and they hired me. It worked out. That That is absolutely amazing. Right? So I, they say, get your foot in the door. I'm like, yeah, I put my whole self through the door. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I love that. That's just like, that's just so incredible because people, if, one of my favorite people in the world, he got denied from law school and he said that he he wanted to be in law school. So he just showed up and sat outside the dean's door and said, just tell me to go get my books. And the guy's like, no. And after two weeks, he goes, oh, fine, you're in. Like, yeah. if you want something bad enough, you just got to make it happen. The, the, the persistence is the most valuable trait, you know, that, that they're going to realize when they look at you they're like, my God, he just will not take no for an answer. He really wants to do this. Fine. And they paid me a lot less than I was getting in Seattle. You know, like half of what I was making up there. And I'm, and I'm like, well, it's good for a little while, but eventually I have to step it up. And then I had to really work my way. And then what ended up happening was I, I got very good at the storyboarding very quickly to the point where a, a director slot opened up. And I said, I, that's what I really want to do. I came down here to become a director. I don't want to storyboard my whole career. So I'm like, well, why don't I put my name in the hat for that one? And they're like, well, we'll see. Well, huff and puff. And then <laughs> they saw a cartoon that I'd made, the one I told you I made on my computer the very first sort of round mm -hmm. of digital thing. And it was very Ren and Stimpy, really outlandish, crazy, wild stuff. But they saw, you know, the potential there. And um, eventually they go, okay, it's really come down to me and one other friend of mine. We were like really good friends working together in the same office, actually, same room at the studio. And, and then it came down to the fact that I did timing directing, the timing sheets where you, you lay out every single frame and explain it for little motion. I'm like, oh, you have experience with that? I'm like, yeah, I did that for two years up in Seattle. And they go, well, then you'll be our new director. And I went from being a storyboard artist, barely making it to like, now I'm in charge of, you know, the wild thornberries and sitting, wow. in, sitting in the studio directing Flea and, you know, Tim Curry and all these guys. It was like, wow, this has been fun. I like Hollywood. <laughs> in Hollywood, anything can happen. That's so yeah. that's crazy. And so your first directing job was on the wild thornberries. Yeah. Oh yeah. my goodness. That's, I've the funny thing, even bef before this, I'd been seeing a lot of wild thornberry stuff on TikTok because the stuff about Donnie, who just makes like the total inaudible sounds, has just been popping off all over. I'm like, wow, really? the 90s, yes, the Ending 90s again, baby yeah. in me is so happy with that. And of course, Nigel Thornberry, mm, smashing, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the best. <laughs> but I'm just, I'm truly amazed by that. And so, were you doing stuff with the wild thornberries and the rugrats at the same time or did they like were they in different portions yeah i mean you basically just get some stuff needs to get done so there's we had i think at that point there's at least two or three shows in production we had crews kind of spread out all over la in different offices they hadn't condensed everything yet at Klasky chupo so there was some in the highland office we were in the la brea office they're all just working on Rugrats, working on Thornberries, you know, whatever. And then occasionally there'd be some overflow or we'd suddenly have nothing to do. And they go, well, then how about the other crew? And all of a sudden you get some Rugrats storyboarding to do out of the blue for a week or two. And then, okay, oh, now that that's out of the way, back to your regular show. And so for the most part, I was on the, the Thornberries uh, Ginger. I was told by Ginger crew is what we would call that one. And the gotcha. other one was the Rugrats and Rocket Power crew. 
Okay, so like two little portions. Got it. Yeah. Very cool. Those are all shows that I grew up watching. That is yeah. amazing. And so if I'm correct, you won an Emmy off of the Rugrats, right? Yeah, exactly. I directed wow. uh, the very last season of the Rugrats was uh, at least, and they're bringing it back again now, but at the time was, uh, it was like 2003. And yeah, we got nominated. First of all, we, we, we couldn't believe we even got nominated because like it's the Rugrats it's so it's 15 years old who even cares about it anymore like it doesn't seem you know but then sitting in the you know the tuxedo all dressed up and over there we're like we're not gonna win this thing like this is fun to be here though and all of a sudden we won and I was like oh my god I cannot believe this so we've been nominated for almost every single show we've made the Thornberries as told by Ginger every season we get nominated for that one um I don't know about Rocket Power but I think Rugrats have been nominated one actually, I think once or twice before in the, in, in the past, but we just kept getting nominated, making these really great shows. And we kept losing to like the Simpsons and we're mm. like, well, you know, it's the Simpsons. What are we going to say? Oh, that thing sucks. They should. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, once we submitted the, the Rugrats episode, it was actually, it was an episode that I had made. Like they, they pick one from each season. So when they submitted mm -hmm. the one that I made, I remember my creative producer saying like, I think we're going to get it this year because it's your episode. And then we got it. So. Wow. That's so amazing. And so what is the title of the Emmy? It's um, outstanding. Let's see. I'll just grab it. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's officially the 2002-2003 Daytime Emmy Awards Outstanding Children's Animated Program. Rugrats. They really like to put a lot of words on these things, right? <laughs> wow. That yeah. is beautiful. Isn't that fun. Is it heavy? It's very heavy. I think they're like, I forget. I think it's the heaviest award of all the awards. Like the most obnoxiously oh big and heavy of all the ones. They <laughs> that is incredible. Yeah. It's, it's been fun to have. So the goal is to get another one now from my own stuff instead of working on someone. No. Yeah, so I would love to hear more about that. When did you transition out of doing kind of more like corporate animation, right. for lack of a better term, and right. more into entrepreneurial self-cartooning? Well, I mean, at first it was it was kind of hard to get work right out of Klasky Chupo. For some reason, when you're at a studio that shuts down, they blame it mm -hmm. on everybody that worked there and they don't want to hire anybody. And, you know, it was a weird thing. It didn't, uh, it wasn't too long. It was only like six months or so that I was kind of struggling to figure out where to go next. I started working on with the robot chicken studio, Shadow Machine. Mm -hmm. We did Moral Oral. I, I kind of storyboarded most of the first season of that show. And then as I was doing that, it wasn't paying, you know, nearly as much as I was making as a director. So I was supplementing it. I was like, all right, well, what else can I do? I just started grabbing little side jobs if I could find them and seeing what else was out there. And eventually I realized I'm like, man, I can just stay home, bring in clients, through just a little bit of advertising now that I've got this Emmy award and some sort of status. And I started getting really good gigs, illustrating children's books and doing um, animated little ads and whatever else and developing things with people. And I'm like, wow, this is really a lot easier. I can go surfing when I want. I don't have to show up at nine to five. I don't have to worry about deadlines, you know, other than the ones I'm with the client. And suddenly I'm like, this is actually kind of more fun in the long run. Um, I would still jump in and do gigs here and there for the big studios, you know, something at Disney for a little while. And then I even storyboarded a, a season of um, Legends of Chamberlain Heights for Comedy Central. That was a little later on. But the freelance stuff was just like, it was more fun because I'm working out with the actual clients. Most of the time, they don't even know what they're doing. So they let me kind of come up with everything. 
And then, you know, the pay is like right there. I just go, all right, send the check over. And then there it is. I don't have to work 40 hours a week for it. And I'm like, it's going to take a lot to get me to come back to these studios now. Like when this is such a great gig and they're not really giving out raises out there anymore. You know, like it's always the same flat kind of pay unless mm-hmm. you're creator of the show, I guess. That's, there's just something so empowering about being able to run something yourself and be able to, to work when you want. And I think it's already incredible that you do something that you love. That's something that not a whole lot of people do. People just think, oh, well, I have to go into this or, oh, it's good money. I hate it, but it's good money. Yeah, yeah, so, they bow to the, the paycheck. I'm like, oh no, that's just gonna kill you in the long run. You know, don't do it. Absol- absolutely. And being a relatively new college graduate, it will be three years um, next month that I graduated. And having gone into working for a little bit and then with the pandemic, I just realized that, this was the time for me to go through my entrepreneurial journey because that's always been my end goal. Mm -hmm. And I had kind of been conforming to what society was saying, oh, well, go get a job first, go get some experience. I'm like, yeah, but I also will get a lot of experience from just doing what you love and just getting your hands dirty. And so- Absolutely, that's the best teacher of all, yeah. Absolutely, and just, again, the persistence where it's like, if you want something bad enough, you just have to make it happen. And it doesn't matter if you don't have a desk, you don't have a place, just (laughs) keep keep showing up. Yeah, just tell me, as long as you, like I said, you're persistent and you're genuinely interested and you can, they see that, you know, your enthusiasm is gonna outweigh whatever else, whatever shortcomings there are otherwise. I mean, the smart ones hire those people because Mm -hmm. they're the hard ones to find. You know, I was willing to show up there every day, like just trying to get in there and learn the system and work through it all. And, you know, if they wanted me to take another test, I would have done it, you know, anything to just to get my my way into that studio. And and I'm good at it. It wasn't like, you know, they actually hired me and they're actually paying me to work on the stuff. So it wasn't like I was like some pie in the sky, you know, oh, dreamer, you know, like, no, I'm actually working on this. Why won't you just take me on full time? I know you need it. You know, like, I'll do your work for you. I'll just you. Mm-hmm. You show me the, the HR department, I'll fill out the paperwork, we'll be all set, yeah. Incredible. And so if I'm correct, you've published your own children's book, right? Right. This is the Letter Beasties. So this one came about, the idea, I guess, first came about, I was at the, the, the Museum of Modern Art in New York mm-hmm. and looking at the Tim Burton exhibit. And he had done it, he never finished it. We started some children's book with numbers going one to 10. And all these weird little creatures, you know, the one was like this weird sock thing. And then there was a little guy below. And then two was some other strange thing with little guys in a teeter-totter. So there's two of them. And he kept going with that. By the time I got to like eight or nine, it got so busy and sort of hard to follow. And I'm like, huh. And you could tell he was giving up on it, you know, and he never published it. I'm there with my friend. I look over to her. I'm like, what? I go, he should have done letters. That would have made more sense. And she's just like, that's a good idea. And by the time we were flying back, you know, a day later, I'd already gotten up to like, you know, letter C or D of this concept, you know, of, of the letter beasties. So the idea was just popped right into my head. I'm like, okay, so each little letter is going to be the shape of the, the alphabet, you know, the letter, and then have the, it starts with, so that's alien, boogeyman, creepy. So that, you know, it matches the, their name. But they're all, you know, and they're all popular. It's all, you know, like it's not some bizarre thing. It's like dragon and fiend and gargoyle and you know, kraken monsters that the kids know. So, um, as I was working it out, figuring out what other how to fill in all the the letters and make it all match, um, the guy that I'd illustrated a book for got a publishing deal, 
and it was a children's book. So, and the publisher really liked the illustrations as much, if not more than the story itself. So she ends up calling me and saying, hey, I really love what you did with this book. Do you have any ideas for books of your own? Would you want to talk about getting published? And I'm like, of course. So wow, like three different ideas. And, but this one, I hadn't really thought of it as a children's book. And she just saw that and said, that's the one you got to do. Make them friendlier. They were a little scarier before. She's like, make them friendlier and more kid, kid, you know, ready. And I'm like, okay. And that took a while. It took me a few months to get it together, but then I got it published. And then a few months later, I realized she wasn't a very good publisher. Didn't like the way she was running the business. She was charging me like almost full price for my own books. Mm. And I'm like, you know, I think I could figure this out. And then I was able to get these printed up for like a dollar a book. Wow. And you sell them for like 10 bucks and everyone's happy to pay that. And I'm like, I made more money in one month than I did a whole year, you know, on my own than I did a whole year with the publisher. And I'm like, entrepreneuring always pays off. (laughs) Absolutely. You're preaching to the choir here. I love it. And so how long ago did you publish that? Well, that was, uh, was probably like 2013. And I made a whole bunch of, and then I, I made one round of the books and then they sold pretty well. I was going to schools and reading to kids. And then I made a second round and I was trying to pitch it to networks as a show. And I went to everybody. I, I tried getting investors in on it. I even went to, I was in Bali. I went to Japan and met with a theme park um, owner that was going to try and maybe make it the mascots for the theme park, but everything would always get really close and then just, you know, fall oh. apart again. I'm like, Oh, this is so painful. Um, and I, I kind of would abandon it for a while, just get sick of trying to chase it down and go back to work on other stuff. But now I feel like, you know, I've got enough money saved up where I can develop the app myself. I don't need to hit up anybody else. And then I'm talking to a couple of guys that, that are interested in, in making some bigger stuff, but I don't want to jinx it. So we'll wait. Mm-hmm. Until- yeah. So, so what is your like dream project? Like if someone came and gave you like a blank check and said, okay, you can make whatever like your big dream is. What, what do you think you would create? Would it be a movie, a show, like a book? What would you do? Well, I love making shows. Movies are great. I mean, that would be a hard one to, to pass up too, but I, I've always worked in TV and I really like TV uh, 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 shorter programs because you get to, you get to finish it and move on and, and develop it further. Like to me, I think there's more, it's cooler to make like breaking bad, you know, like five seasons of this incredible series that people can go back to and experience. Like you just kind of live with the characters for, for all that time rather than just make like, you know, one or two movies that take almost as long, if not longer to make than, than you did to to make those, you know, series. So, mm-hmm. you know, for animation anyway, that's what it takes. It takes you know, three years. Forever. Three years, yeah. To make a single film. So I, I like the, the energy and the, the, the quickness uh, of, of TV. Uh, just, I, I always have. So, I mean, ideally my dream project would be something, if not this concept and something like it, where I can make it into an entire brand where you have a TV show, you've got an app with the, you've got dolls, you've got figurines, you've got books and all the stuff. Um, and it just keeps going and going forever like the Smurfs as a kid was a big inspiration for me. I thought that was amazing. Like the way they could just have this endless bunch of characters and then all the little toys and then it becomes a TV show. And Mm -hmm. this is just, that's something exciting about that to me, how you can just keep making something like Snoopy that just goes into every kind of entertainment, every kind of media uh, with the same charm, you know, the same Mm -hmm. appeal. So would you want something probably that's more like 
children's based, something more adult based. Cause two of the biggest cartoons that I feel like that I still like watch avidly, I would say SpongeBob has been one through like my whole life. Classic and as an, oh, the best. And as an adult, Bob's Burgers, like oh, wow. so funny to me. So I feel like there's, there's such a great different contrast in like animation that's based more towards kids and mm-hmm. towards adults. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've worked almost equal parts in both of them at this point. And you're right. It's a, a whole different mentality to be doing the adult stuff. And I, the adult stuff, you know, Bob's Burgers, that's got the potential to be this kind of brand. Like I'm saying, I mean, I'm sure they've got lunch boxes and all the fun stuff like that and, and did all these cool things with it. But um, it's a different kind of market on the whole. And I don't think it gets nearly as, as big as if you do, you know, children's stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I, I guarantee SpongeBob outsells anything Bob's Burgers <laughs> in one year than anything Bob's Burgers has ever done you know, altogether um, because it's this universal appeal. And yeah, yeah. And parents don't think twice about buying something for their kids if they like it. You know, it'll shut them up. Oh, yeah, here you go. Take it. (laughs) (laughs) I know, like, my mom was a bigger SpongeBob fan than I was growing up, which was so funny. And I think that's one of the reasons that I loved it so much um, was I remember distinctly as a kid that my mom used to love it. And so for Mother's Day one year, I bought her a clock from Target that had SpongeBob and the uh, like the clock hands were like his arms that were like squiggling and the background was blue and it had bubbles on it. And I gave it to her and she looked at it like it was the best present she'd ever gotten. And she decided right there that she was going to renovate our bathroom to match the clock. And I was like, excuse me, what? And so her (laughs) sister, my aunt is an interior designer. So she's like, I need bubble wallpaper. So we bought blue bubble wallpaper, changed the color scheme to blue of the bathroom all to match the SpongeBob clock. And I'm thinking, wow, like if this is just one family household, like imagine what kind of like pull that this these cartoons have in other households yeah around the whole world i mean it's it's insane when i discovered it but at some point i I looked up licensing and what they make off of this stuff i can't remember how old i was It was probably back in the 90s anyway i I saw that the numbers coming i'm like oh my god like the amount of money that that spongebob generates just off the merchandising like there's nothing just licensing all these different things was you know over like two three billion dollars a year profit I'm like that because it's they don't make anything. They just allow people to make the yeah. stuff and then take the money for them doing it. You know, they want to make a SpongeBob soap dish and like, okay, we approve. We'll take 10% and they yeah. do it over here. They do it over here. And all of a sudden they're making billions, billions of dollars a year. And I'm like, that is awesome. I want to tap into that. You know, I literally have, this is going to sound absurd because I, so many people send me, they're like, oh, SpongeBob collabs, SpongeBob products. They're like, Charlotte, this is for you someone sent me they're like you need to get this because i'm really passionate about like the environment and trying to like cut down on like single use products and stuff mm-hmm. and so there's this company that does makeup removing wipes okay. and they're they literally did a 7 day like spongebob theme that all of the makeup pads are a different character so (laughs) so i got it for like 25 dollars, and so i get to take my makeup off with like spongebob or patrick or mr krabs and it's (laughs) it's absurd like why why do i need spongebob on my makeup removing pads i don't but did i pay more for it yes yes you did and it turns out you did need it you felt so good when it was sandy day like look at this i got a little yes and i was like wow look at this and like plankton's a really like nice girl green color and mm, it's just it's 
It's perfect. I love it. But it's crazy. You're so right that animation can translate into all these different areas so nicely because I feel like you wouldn't get that from another TV show. Like you, no. you can get some merch, but it's not going to be the same. It would be weird if we had like go to Disney if I had like Hannah Montana uh, as a kid I like know. on it. Like that's right? more weird. A cartoon just Selena Gomez more... wipe doesn't really feel the same as you know SpongeBob. Exactly. Yeah. So I think with cartooning, that's just like a whole different ball game. It is, and that's and it's timeless. I mean. That's the beauty of it. Like, you know, Bart Simpson's an eight-year-old boy forever, whatever he is, 10-year-old, mm-hmm. whatever. And, and it's, he's been on the air like 30-something years now, hasn't aged a day. And when you watch it, you feel like he hasn't aged a day. You just can't, you, it's another fun day in this crazy kid's life. So that is, I really don't know how else you can do that with animation. That's, that's the only realm. It's just, it's so, it's so interesting. And so what kind of projects are you working on right now that you, that you can talk about? Um, I think I could talk about it. I'm getting pretty close to the end. I'm, I'm doing a couple um, pilots, I guess, for um, animated shows from people that haven't done anything, you know, really professionally before. Um, and that's always fun when they find me and we just sit down and, and I figure out how to get them, you know, to make an entire show. So I've got one. I don't think she'd kill me for saying it, but it's, it's the, the life and times of Schrodinger's cat. Do you know that, cool. that thought experiment, Schrodinger's cat, where he's, the cat's alive or dead in the box? I think a little bit. Okay. It's, it's a, it's, it's an old experiment. It's from like 1920s or something when they first came up with it. But um, so she's, it's, it's all about quantum physics and, and, and Mm -hmm. multiple universes and, you know, uh, whatever. So that, that whole concept, she's, she's making into an animated uh, series and we're making the the pilot just about, I'm just turning into the animators uh, now and I'm packaging it. So it'll be, it should be ready to release in a, a, two or three months. Cool. So that's, that's what I've been working on. And another one with a guy who's never done anything animated either, but he's totally done. He does all the voices himself for this crazy show about all these people kind of living at the bottom of society and the way they're sort of like making do with what they have and they're perfectly happy. They're homeless, but they're actually happier than the rich people, you know, in, in their mm-hmm. own way and whatever. It's this wild ride of, uh, you know, the lower end of everything. So that's another one. Hopefully get that out in the next few weeks. Uh, and then the third show, I definitely can't talk about that one, yet. <laughs> but there's a third show that, and then I'm doing some ads for some other random companies in between. Um, so it's a very busy time with my little studio. Um, it was nothing in March last year. I had a few contracts and then everything literally almost on the same day when they, when they locked everything down, everything disappeared, all the contracts. Well, we don't want to spend money. We don't know what's going to happen. We're going to, turn all to gold and live in a cave. Sorry, you know, we're out. I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, and then, and I was like kind of panicked. I'm like, what am I going to do? That was my income for the most of the year. Actually, it was all these uh, big contracts coming in. And then two or three weeks later, a whole new round of stuff comes in and they're all like, well, we can't spend our money on anything else. There's no more productions of any other kind going on. So we thought animation might be good. And, and all of a sudden I got more work than I had before. And it's still, I'm still riding on it. Like, wow. I can't wait to get this done so I can just take a break and go on vacation for a month. <laughs> Amazing. No, I was, I actually had a conversation about that too, because I'm not like an avid TV watcher, but I have my shows that I watch, like my few shows that I enjoy. And the thing is so many of them like couldn't produce in person because of COVID and everything. The first show that got back was Bob's Burgers because 
you can just record the voices like yeah. everyone could do that you don't have to be together so i was like wow what a time for for animated shows yeah i mean so much stuff took off it's amazing how it um you know animation we, we were already there like i was saying i was doing remote work living on a beach in bali doing all this you know anything imaginable like making animated stuff making children's books and i'm like boy there's just no reason to own a studio and you know to, to i should say to own a, a building and house mm -hmm. everybody in there and worry about and once you're done developing it that's it i mean you just check in people just show their work whatever they're doing if they drew characters if they drew storyboards they just play it on the you know a zoom meeting okay change this do that a little bit better okay good everything fine yeah you feed the dog oh great i have a good afternoon bye you know <laughs> <laughs> no overhead for the the thing no insurance for all the other stuff it's like the, the cost of of doing you know a production i mean it, it, it must have come down by at least 50 60 percent since the pandemic you know for these studios i would think i don't know that's it's it's a wild it's wild how the pandemic has shifted our ways of thinking yeah. um and i think in a lot of ways it's been for the better because as you and i with very entrepreneurial and innovative mindsets we're often thinking about like okay how can we do things more efficiently like how can we do the new next big thing where so much of the world and so much of society is like well this is the way it's done if it ain't broke don't fix it yeah and the pandemic has really shown wow a lot of things were broke we just chose to not acknowledge it yeah, and so yeah. we're throwing away time and money and effort on these things that were just you know really old ways of doing things we, we began to realize you know a business trip stay in the five-star hotel to have lunch with the guy for an hour and a half where you're really just having cocktails the whole time you know and mm -hmm. your business is done in 15 minutes and then oh and then you go and play golf for the afternoon it's like some companies funding all this you know many many yeah. companies are funding that kind of lifestyle for all these people and there's something going like this is a really dumb way to do business why don't we just have a zoom call and then you go do what you want and we'll save all that money and i think uh yeah, it's like the party's over for a lot of people but it's it's the party's just getting started for people that are doing startups and, and trying to save money and, and realizing they can do a lot more with their, their time and their money, you know? For sure. I took an economics, well, I took three economics courses in college. And I think the biggest thing that I retained from any of them was just like efficiency. And mm -hmm. since I studied international business, I like looked at how different countries did a lot of different things. And for me, like, just seeing how countries ran things efficiently and then seeing how we run things so inefficiently occasionally, yeah. it just made me want to rip my hair out. And yeah. it's really cool seeing how we have shifted as a nation to work more efficiently at things. Yeah. Yeah. I think the whole world, not just, not just America. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. And I, I felt like I've always kind of been ahead of the curve with the technology stuff. Um, and I, I don't, it's not even like I'm bragging about it. It's just, <laughs> I, I just want to get things done so bad, or I, I just see the, uh, you know, the, the clear path that's opening up and just jump in there and don't think about it. Um, you know, the, the other consequences, cause I'm like, if this is even this little bit better than doing it that way, it's worth taking the mm -hmm. risk and abandoning the old way of doing it. So, I mean, I was like getting into 3d animation really early on. I don't like it as much. So I don't do it. It's, it's just way too technical for me, but mm -hmm. I, but I got in and started learning how to do it pretty early on. And then, um, and then, yeah, the digitizing with the animation, like I was saying, like scanning in the drawings and being able to assemble it like that, um, you know, that sort of, for me was always, you know, like eventually they're gonna get even better at this. And then they did, and then it gets better. And now they have the software that, that 
can recognize the characters and just repeat them again and again throughout the rest of the thing. If you want, you know, like all these cool changes, you know, change the color of a hat. It changes the color of the hat for the rest of the cartoon, just like that. I'm like, Oh my God. So I just get more and more excited as, as the technology keeps getting better and the opportunity to work remotely, to work on a laptop instead of a, you know, whatever. And so I think the people that don't embrace this or, you know, fighting it at all, I don't think they realize how far behind they, they are, mm-hmm. you know, how, difficult it's going to be first not 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 just to, to catch up but then to keep up once they've caught up you know you've got to just keep moving with this stuff and i mean look at the biggest companies in the world now they're all tech companies you know apple mm-hmm. google facebook even tesla they're, they're really tech companies run the world you know the the, the and that's just the sooner you admit it <laughs> I know it's it's crazy it's crazy okay and so wait I'm curious do you do work pretty much for like only bigger companies or do you do some like smaller scale stuff too like what's your sweet spot a little bit of everything um like the 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 pilots I'm doing the Schrodinger's cat thing for example that's you know one woman just deciding she wanted to put this together she's a writer and you know, so that was a really independent production all the way through. It's just basically me and her working out how to get this thing done. And then at the same time, I'm working on an ad for this, you know, gigantic pharmaceuticals company that needed a little animated guy. And, you know, they just pay a lot more money for a lot Mm -hmm. less work, but it's much more, um, a a massive committee of people handing down notes on top of notes on top of notes. And then it changes again. And then, and then around again, you're like, Oh God, you don't have the freedom. Yeah. Yeah, There's no freedom. You have to follow, you know, line for line, literally a period italicized text, get that right. Or, Oh, we have to do the whole thing over. You didn't italicize that text in the giant scroll at the end that just reads off a bunch of disclaimers. You're like, Oh my God. (laughs) Oh, the worst. Welcome to America where anything about pharmacy or medical it's, like one third commercial, two thirds side effects and warnings. And legalities. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's all, so, oh. but that's, you know, I, I'm not going to say no to it. That's kind of easy money and it's right mm-hmm. there. And if I don't do it, someone else is going to do it. So let's just jump on it. So I, I've worked with gigantic companies, little independent people like this, mid range things, whatever sort of comes along. I've never been, I never had a problem floating between any of these, you know, so. very cool. And so I, I had done a little bit of snooping on your website. So the short that you had done, I believe it was called Mort. Yeah. Um, was that like completely yours or were you doing it for someone? Were you doing it with the hopes of putting it into these festivals? Like I want, I want to hear more about that. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I did that completely on my own. Um, I, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, I brought in people to help composer mm-hmm. my friend armando who's an amazing awesome composer had a couple of friends come in and help with the voices here and there but the, the concept and all the animation and everything else was completely done by me um and i actually thought it up after a night of partying in seattle we were downtown and, and i looked like we were all crashed out at a friend's house in downtown seattle and i woke up at six in the morning with the entire film in my head like almost shot for shot what you saw was and i'm like trying before i lost the thought I'm running around the house trying to figure out where to write it down. We were at Trisha's house. And so she had nothing to write on. This is, you know, I, I, I'm like, how do you not have a single thing? I didn't want to wake anybody up. And I'm going, and I finally go through her kitchen drawers and I found a pad that said, have a nice day with like a sunflower and a bumblebee pen with little wings on it. I'm like, okay. And I'm writing, if you saw Mort, how ridiculous that is. This, this guy's trying to kill himself unsuccessfully, ends up killing a bunch of other people accidentally. It's a comedy. This will be great, you know? <laughs> 
<laughs> and I wrote down the whole thing and I, and I never got, I, it took a long time to get back to it because technology wasn't there yet. And I just, not even six months later, I started working at Klasky Chupo and started working on thornberries and having that whole part of life. So when it finally was all done, it was like, it was about nine or 10 years later. And I went back to it and said, you know what? I got to make this thing. I've been kicking it around forever. It's, it's waiting to happen. It's all in my head. And I just sat down and spent about the next year, maybe a little longer, working on my own, on my computer, in between gigs, just, just hammering out that cartoon. So, wow. I, and, and the whole time I'm thinking, who's going to even want to watch this? <laughs> it's a crazy idea. I go, and then I guess I'll just go for festivals and see it. And then I end up getting it into like, I think it made it into 42 or 43 festivals all over the world. I won like nine or 10 of them, you know, the top prize at the festivals. I went to the Cannes Film Festival with it and showed it off at the, the short film corner there. And I mean, that thing was one of the most fun productions I've ever done. Never, you know, everything came out of it was great. That's amazing. I think that just shows that when you have that spur of the moment idea, like don't let it get away, do whatever you need to do to get the oh, piece of paper. And even it, like, yeah. I think that sometimes, I think a lot of us have ideas that we just kind of kick away or be like, oh, the, exactly what you said. Oh, who would want to watch this? Like who, who would, who would like buy this product? Who would X, Y, Z? And we just say like, okay, whatever. But it's those ideas that even if you hold on to them for nine, 10 years can flourish into something yeah, amazing. They just sit there. And I knew that was going to be great because it was such a perfect little story. It's just one perfect little gag after another that kept twisting. You, you never see what's coming. You don't know, you know, you're like, oh my God, how is this going to go wrong this time? It does, you know, you're waiting to see the, what, what disaster is going to happen. But it was, yeah, I just knew it was going to be very easy to, to, for people to relate to it. You know, that's what I kept thinking if they can get over the fact that it's all about some guy who's just, you know, mortally depressed, <laughs> which is not like me at all, you know, but it, it, it was just a funny thing to, to, to play with. I'm like, you know, how, how can we run with it? But I, the whole time that it was sitting there waiting to be made, it reminded me of um, an interview I saw with Clint Eastwood where he was talking about um, Unforgiven. If you, you know, that movie, it was a Western that he did. I know it. I haven't seen it. Okay. Well, that one, he had that kicking around easily as long, probably 10, maybe even 15 years. He had the screenplay there and that he just knew, like it, ended up, it won him the Oscar. It was best picture. He won the Oscar for best director. I think Gene Hackman won for best actor. Like it just took over the Oscars that year and it made like a hundred million dollars. It was a really massive success for him. And he kept it around. I'm like, how can you sit on that for 10 or 12 years? And he said mm -hmm. it was like this wonderful little dessert. He knew it was going to taste great. He knew it was going to be awesome when he got to it, but he had to get through all this other stuff first. And he finally goes, all right, let's just bust out this little chocolate parfait here and, you know, and dig in. And he knew even as he was making, he's like, this is going to be amazing. And that's what, I, as I was making Mort, I kept laughing at it going, okay, this is my little unforgiven. Kicking around forever. Oh. When you finally get to it, you know, it's going to be a, you know, a fun little treat. <laughs> I, I absolutely love it. Well, I have just had so much fun. And one thing that I like to wrap up with, I like to ask everyone this, both on the podcast and just people that I meet all the time, because it's just such a telling question. But if you could travel to anywhere in the world, time, money, distance, none of it mattered, where would you go and why? Oh man, I have a quick answer for that. I would go to New Zealand right now. <laughs> because 
they figured out how to get around the whole COVID thing. Yep. And I've wanted to go there forever anyway. It's probably one of the most remote places. They filmed all the Lord of the Rings there. I definitely want to go to Hobbiton and see all that stuff. And they have great skiing. They got great surfing. People are nice. That's, I think, really high on my list of places. If I could just teleport and be there right now. What about you? Yes. Um, see, so I've been to North Island, New Zealand, and I loved it. South Island, New Zealand is like one of the number one places on my bucket list because I want to go paragliding in Queenstown. Oh, there you go. And that like, it scares the heck out of me, but I want to do it. And then I would say also what you and I talked about earlier, Costa Rica is really, Mm -hmm. really high up on my list. And I think that's a potential I'm trying to hit 50 countries but I was trying to do it by the time I hit turn 25, but COVID had other plans. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to do it by 26, which will be next August, not this, but next. And I'm at 43 right now. So hopefully Costa Rica is, is quick up on the list. There you go. Wow. That's great. Yeah. Once this is over, I'm, I'm in the same exact mindset. I want to start traveling. I want to see South America. I was saying Colombia, Ecuador. I've been to Brazil, but I'm happy to go back there. I want to see, a friend of mine was telling me Panama is really cool. I want to see it. And then I want to, I, I've never been to Italy. Got to get that out of the way. I've only yes. been, I'm, I'm only, you're up to 43 countries. I've, I've been to about 15 countries now. And some people are like, wow. And I'm like, no, nah, man, that's nothing. I'm just getting started. <laughs> yeah, he's just getting started. And who knows? I'll have to, we'll have to meet up in another country and I'll take you to Maybe. my favorite karaoke bars. <laughs> that sounds perfect. Just let me know what's uh, uh, the next country on the list. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, this has been so, so fun. And yeah. I'm just, I'm so glad we got to spend some time together. And I will put everything in the show notes so that people can get connected with you, your website, so that they can watch Mort and they can see everything. Is there any other place that you would want people to connect with you on? Um, no, I mean, the, the letterbeasties.com. That's, that's a cool, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm about to, to ramp up and really start uh, making a lot more stuff for that soon. So that'll be a good, good spot. Perfect. And I will throw in the link to the book as well. And okay. it's going to be, it's going to be great. I'm so excited. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Charlotte. I think what really resonated with me was Ron's persistence. I loved when he talked about the saying, you have to put your foot in the door. Well, he went and put his whole self in. I just, I love that. It's such a great reminder that anything is possible if you want it badly enough. So go put your whole self into it. You've got this. A special thank you again to Ron. Please go check out his work. You will not be disappointed. And we will see you all here together again soon. Have a good one, everyone.